tetragrammaton. One of your passions is music, enough so that you've organized your life to travel the world to listen to it. Is that correct? Music has dominated my life. I listen to it every day. I try to consume it as voraciously as possible and just learn what's new out and just keep on taking it in. And at age 61 years, I've been doing this since I was seven. Would you say your enthusiasm for music has diminished over the course of your life? Oh, I think it's intensified. The more music you know, the more music you become curious about, right? And the more people you know who can recommend more good things to you. So it's an all-consuming addiction. I don't think I have to tell you that. Yes? Yes, I'm, I'm addicted. And uh, unlike most addictions, I think it's actually good for you. So you can learn history. You, you also can learn economics. You learn about the world. I've been to over 100 countries, often in quest of different musics. And I love also reading books about music, composers, classic rock, and so on. Great. What are you going to play for us today? I thought we would start with something very classic. We'll get to some more popular music. But for me, the most universal of all composers is Beethoven. It's a lot of very famous Beethoven pieces. So I thought I would pick one that hardly anyone listens to. And he wrote these small pieces called Bagatelles. There's three groups of Bagatelles. This is the, the latest group, Opus 126. And Beethoven thought those were the best. And he called them, you know, a cycle of Kleinigkeiten, which means small things in German. So whenever Beethoven is downplaying something, you actually ought to suspect it's quite profound. And for me, the perfect mix of Beethoven's profundity and humor together. So that's the piece. This comes from 1825. But also important is the pianist. And the pianist, oh, here we go.
Are there rules to a bagatelle? They're just from his imagination. That to me is the whole Beethoven universe in miniature. Uh, the storminess, the passion, but the universality, the positive vision, the embracing of mankind, the humor, the starting and restarting, but doing it different ways. And it's, I think, our most universal pianist playing that piece, and that's Svatoslav Richter from the Soviet Union. And he was the one pianist who could play everything wonderfully, but it would all sound different. So it could be Chopin or Scriabin, or it could be Schubert or Beethoven. Uh, he has a dreamy, wonderful Bach. And, you know, so often he sounds so nervous. It's always on edge. He doesn't quite ever let you relax, but he brings in the voice of the compo composer as well. And he was quite an eccentric. He, he grew to hate giving concerts. He hated flying across the Atlantic. He stopped visiting the United States. And he would love to just have a, a sudden announcement of a concert. It might be in a dark room on short notice. He didn't necessarily care if he was paid. And he would play where he wanted to play. He passed away, I think, in 1997. But he's one of the pianists you can go to. And he's just always interesting. Like Glenn Gould can be amazing, but can be terrible. Richter is always interesting, uh, quite consistent. Great. What, did, what were you thinking or feeling when you heard that? I loved it. I was more interested in the form of the piece, and I don't know the rules of Bagatelle. I don't know if they, do they always have dynamics? Are they always from loud to quiet and back loud again, or can they be anything? I think he picked that form to be liberated from all strictures. So keep in mind how heavily influenced he is by Haydn. And Haydn typically things have forms and you're supposed to follow the forms. And Beethoven's piano sonatas are like that. Symphonies start off being like that. They break out of the forms. And this is just like a fantasy. You know, do what you want. Blank canvas. Beautiful. Now I thought we would next go to Fela Kuti and then go back to some avant-garde precursors and see some of the connections. But people will relate to Kuti on a podcast in a way that they won't. If I just start with Stravinsky, does that make sense? Absolutely. Tell me about Fela Kuti. Fela Kuti was from Nigeria. He was a remarkably productive and creative musician. He pioneered a brand of funk and rock and roll and percussive music in Lagos. There's still a club in Lagos owned by his family. His son, Fema Kuti, is also a very well-known musician. You can go there and hear Fema Kuti play many evenings. It's a fantastic thing to do. But Fela Kuti is the supreme Nigerian creator. When Paul McCartney was in Lagos to record Band on the Run, of course, he went to hear Fela Kuti. And it's percussive music, and it's polyrhythmic, and it's originally West African ideas, but turned into popular music. Did he have a role in politics as well? He was so famous in Nigeria that everything he said mattered. Uh, it's believed he died of HIV-AIDS. And uh, yeah, he was extremely significant in politics. He had a large number of wives and children, uh, had a very particular kind of lifestyle, and uh, was just extraordinarily dynamic in everything he did. And he made dozens and dozens of albums, some at the time put out on cassettes. He was a key figure in cassette culture in Africa at that time. And maybe the biggest two-way influence is between Fela Kuti and James Brown. Do we know what came before Fela Kuti? There's plenty of African popular music, say, in the 1950s or even earlier, that draws upon Cuban rhythms. <clears throat> African families are starting to get radios, 
starting to be able to listen to music. Uh, there are many more dance clubs. And all of these styles were played in the dance clubs and dance halls of the time, and then on radio. Uh, but they weren't celebrity in the way that Fela Kuti would become. So he observed rock and roll and James Brown, and he picked up on those earlier traditions and turned them into a rock star persona, and I would say made them better, amplified them. Would you say that his music sounded different than the music that came before it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no one like Fela Kuti. The closest would be his son, Fema, and Fema, of course, is coming afterwards. Great, let's listen to him. Original Sufferhead is one album if you want to hear all the way through, but let's see what cut we have. Three, four. a dance music, of course. Beautiful. Reminds me a little bit of Tito Puente in the way that it feels. Yeah, big Latin and Cuban cross-pollination. Mm -hmm. And James Brown's is called Sweat, very clear connection. There's been a Broadway show called Fela, which is actually quite good. And it tours around different places. Great. You know, one of my themes in music that I find the most interesting is how popular music is rooted in classical music's avant-garde. So think of classical music as a kind of research and development laboratory for popular music. So Sonic Youth comes out of Glenn Branca, the Beatles drawing on Cage and Stockhausen, among others. And that if you know avant-garde classical music, to me, so much popular music makes more sense, especially the weird parts of it. So to study avant-garde classical music, for me, there's three places to start. We'll only hear one of them. But they would be uh, Schoenberg, Webern and Stravinsky. And it's worth listening to almost everything those three people did. Stravinsky is the one that works best on podcast. And he's, the, in classical music, deciding there's a whole different way to carve up the space of music and to think more rhythmically and polyrhythmically. He was influenced by African rhythms, just as Picasso was influenced by the African visual arts. And Stravinsky is one of the first rock and rollers, you could say. And was this at the same time as Picasso? <clears throat> at the same time as Picasso. So it makes sense. It's almost like a movement of embracing African culture in the arts at that point in time. But of course, there are earlier precursors, one being Beethoven. <clears throat> if you listen, listen to Beethoven's Appassionata Sonata, which is very rhythmic, and you hear it through the years of having just listened to Stravinsky, uh, it just makes a lot more sense. You see, Beethoven was in that way also so ahead of his time. Let's listen to both of those. Let's listen to Stravinsky first and then Beethoven. 
This is a piece by Stravinsky called, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce the French, French, but Le Noche, and it's about a wedding, and it's done by our percussion ensemble, and it's directly brutal in your face. Here's something else from Stravinsky as well, just to paint a broader picture of him. Stravinsky's the composer who maybe succeeded in the greatest number of styles. So he has percussive rhythmic styles. He has a purely neoclassical style. Uh, later, he was a pioneer of 12-tone and atonal musics. And they're all really good. So what do you want to do with Stravinsky and then a bit of Beethoven? You tell me. You tell me another good choice of Stravinsky before we get to Beethoven. Or if you'd rather do the Beethoven first, I follow you. Let's do the Beethoven first. Okay. We're now hunting down the Appassionata Sonata, which is Beethoven's Opus 57. And I'm going to play just the very beginning and then go to the third movement. The third movement is where it all really explodes and comes together. First, we'll just hear briefly the rumbling at the very beginning, where you can just feel the revolution starting to come. Let's go to that. So already you get the picture. 
And in the Stravinsky, there's four pianos used mostly percussively, Beethoven being the pioneer. And now if we go to the third and final movement of Appassionata, the Allegro, Yeah, what's interesting about that, the, the, the Beethoven seems much more narrative-based to me. I feel like the music is telling us a story here, whereas in the Stravinsky, it's not telling us the story, we're in an atmosphere. And in the atmosphere, we get to dictate the story. It puts us in a place, a new place, whereas this is uh, more, feels more narrative to me. I think it is, and a lot of Stravinsky is deconstructing things. Let's try another Stravinsky piece to show his diversity of styles. Mm -hmm. This is called Petrushka, which I, you know, he did two versions of it. The first, I think, is 1911. And uh, here we have one of my favorite conductors, Pierre Boulez, conducting Petrushka with the Cleveland Symphony.
You can still hear the percussive elements, but it's more like normal classical music. And is this earlier? <clears throat> he, this was published in 1911, but he worked on it trying to improve it his whole life. There's also what I think is a 1947 version. And although he was Russian, very influenced by Russian folk tales, he ends up in Los Angeles, of all places. How was he received in his time? When uh, Rite of Spring premiered, uh, the legend has it that people threw chairs and rioted. That may or may not be overstated. But he became very well known pretty quickly and was seen as a giant amongst other composers. I'll play you a short bit of some of his 12-tone music from very late in his life. And this will not sound nice to many listeners, but it makes more sense the more you listen to it. A lot of different styles there. Yeah, I imagine that was very new for people hearing it at the time. And no one really liked that at the time. I'm not sure many people like it today. Uh, was Stravinsky considered the first of the avant-garde classical composers? He and Schoenberg, also Webern, uh, Berg a bit later, are surfacing at broadly the same time. So the others are in the, the German-speaking world, Stravinsky, from, you know, Russia, Soviet Union. Uh, and it's striking in how many different fields there's this common set of changes. What do you think the conditions were in the world that brought this music up? That people, first there was a lot of chaos in the world. So we're near the World War I era, though actually before it. But people feel something is brewing. But then just the intellectual idea that it was possible to reconstruct everything from the ground up which is not in every way the right idea to have. It's not good for society. But in terms of the arts, it led to the remarkable creativity of modernism, that you should try everything, which, of course, popular music picked up on. But it really comes in music from those individuals, Stravinsky and Schoenberg, most of all, that you shouldn't let anything stop you. You could reimagine any part of it. You didn't necessarily have to have a melody or rhythm or meter the way you had been taught or told you had to have. And just people saying to themselves, like, hey, we can redo this, was a remarkable moment in human history. Was it in some ways a, a punk rock of the day? Absolutely a punk rock of the day. It sounds like that's what you're describing. And more radical, when you, if you know this other stuff and you hear punk rock, punk rock, like A, immediately makes sense, but B, sounds conservative. And it ended up being conservative, if you look at what happened to many of the punk rockers. Not, not in a bad way, but uh, yep. it became clear their true identities. And that's another way in which classical avant-garde and popular music fit together. Like, I love the Sex Pistols, uh, but it's like putting on Haydn for me. It doesn't feel like rebellion. It also seems like a new version of a Back to Basics, a different kind of a Back to Basics. That's right. I think the downside of it was that socially people decided that the 
19th century classical liberal world order also is going to be overturned. And in many countries, they replaced it with something far, far worse. Fascism, communism, terrible, brutal acts. But you see it in literature, right? There's James Joyce, there's Franz Kafka, there's Proust, writing kinds of novels, stories, poems that you know, would have been unimaginable not too much earlier. But it's been highly influential, including on the New York scene of composers. My favorite composer who works with voice is Robert Ashley. And we can uh, listen to a bit from Robert Ashley. He's speaking you know, the late 1960s, 1970s, uh, his key works end maybe about 1987, but he still has works after that. And uh, he's a hard composer to describe. Some of it sounds profound. Some of it sounds like lounge music. And he keeps on confusing you as to which of the two he's doing. And Ashley uh, had Tourette syndrome. So his central obsession was the difference between voluntary and involuntary speech. So he's always trying to figure out what does speech mean? What does it mean to, to want to say something or to say something when you don't want to say something? That's a case where a supposed disability uh, led to what was an extraordinary level of creativity. Now the Ashley we will play is an excerpt from his opera Improvement. This is Act One, Scene Eight. No, George, there's your mother, my mother, and birth control. These are three reasons why we should not get married. I have come to see it is said that the car we run along. It is said that the car we run along. The wish was just that he is not interested in crying. It is said that the car we run along. The wants to sit outside the time being all things in the marriage of the property of his wife. In order that the mother's future is secure. It is said that the car we run along. Who runs around with the daughter on the sofa stuffing family. Amazing as she is. It is said that the car most people that are riding. Another reason, George, is your back. Or my background, we seem to see things so differently. My family is painting, and though I'm sure they may change, you can be granted because that's the way the officer saw it. Still, words would be useless if the sound were not painting. And so I live in pain to make a silly joke. I have this word inside the pain, and when I respect my eyes, you can consider to remember that my origin is against the certain skill of providing, as in to provide, and the person not being a granted having a characteristic ability to provide. Another reason, George, is your name. There are customs in my family about how men should be named. George is practically unheard of. They would never get it straight. Do you know what I mean? As you know, all tap dancers named George. It means lighthearted. Tap dancing on your faces rehearses is the word they use, but they are all trapped in the first stage or first test of memory. How many syllables and for how long? Immediately, ten minutes later, at the end of the day, forever. No other thing of memory or the dance of memory is to say, meaning the same thing is in the position of information. The dance of memory is just that, and you need to learn so that dance can be followed. You made a point or two that I could bear to hear again. In tap dancing on your faces, that's why we are so often seen looking down. I love this. It's great, isn't it? Great. It's an early kind of rap music, also. The other amazing Ashley work, the two best, I think, the other would be Perfect Lives, which is my personal favorite. And then he has some short avant-garde pieces like Automatic Writing. Purposeful Lady, Slow Afternoon, that are amazing and again, just quite different. Let's hear your favorite. What? They don't have automatic writing. 
But here's in Sarah Mencken, Christ and Beethoven, there were men and women, which is a good piece. A very truly great artist, John Griffith, Londonberry, heroic, like Richard Dudley, Mary McBrady, had very wildly come amongst his very, really grand, and then went to Mary with a wave candle, then had Francois, Adrian, Wilbur, Thomas Gainsborough, Edmund Spencer, Stella Benson, James Ross, Williamson, and Winston Churchill, very titanically, in their very truly great manners of Arthur Burton, Roscoe, very heroically, James Weldon Johnson, Claude McKay, Booker Kelly of Earl Washington, Cody Cullen, Sarah Neil Hurston, Jean Toomer, Walter Francis White, and James Langston Hughes, had very excellently come amongst his very, really grand men and women to Dominico's Theotokopoulos, very titanically, in his very truly great manners of Jesus Christ, very heroically, Macon as Papa had very ironically come amongst his very, really grand men and women to Helen Maria. Anyway, you get the idea. That's true avant-garde. Ah. And in the sheet music for this, would it have the words, would the words be there? I'm not sure there would be sheet music. So there would be Things programmed in a primitive way. So this would be probably the late 1960s from the sound of it. And he uh, would partly improvise the words. And so that's Ashley speaking. That's his voice. That's his voice. I see. And not that piece, but he often had a pianist named uh, Blue Gene Tierney, who uh, hung around New York, was a great like boogie-woogie jazz lounge pianist. And Gene Tierney would show up to these Ashley events and just play stuff, which was also semi-improvised. And the best parts of Perfect Lives are Gene Tierney and Ashley semi-improvising together and making stuff up like it's a reality TV show or something. So what was ever written down? I don't know. Other people have performed Perfect Lives. Uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the group Matmos, sort of electronica. They're obsessed with Perfect Lives. They've done some versions of it. And whenever anyone else does it, it's quite different. So I would imagine. And do they make up their own words? Because are they, if the words are improvised, is the idea that there are improvised words here, or once the words are improvised forevermore, those are the words? No, I think it's more like a platform. Like here's the perfect lives platform. I see. You slot your own America into the content. I see. And Ashley, as far as I can tell, seemed comfortable with that. Uh, my very favorite avant-garde composer, uh, Ashley would maybe be in my top two or three, but is Morton Feldman, who uh, is minimalistic, but not like Philip Glass. Uh, beautiful, surreal, calm, meditative, communing with the infinite, you could say. Shall we hear just a bit of uh, yes. Morton Feldman's For John Cage? Yes, please. Okay.
I love it. It forces us into the moment. Nothing that comes is what's expected. So there's always the sense of discovery, but it's within the same framework. So it's never like a shocking change, more of a delicate reminder to be here now, repeating over and over again. It's like the Portuguese author Pessoa, you know, the book of very small things. I want to listen to it for a long time. I like, I like the way it makes me feel. There's a uh, string quartet with piano piece by Feldman, which I think is one of his best. And that takes up five compact discs. It's probably about five hours. And to hear that straight through is mind-blowing. Should we listen to a little piece? Let us see if we can find it. How did you come to this music in your life? I had a friend in high school. I'm, his name was Eric Lyon. And he uh, became a professional composer. He teaches at Virginia Tech. And I would go over to Eric's house for other reasons. And he started playing Paul Hindemith for me which is in retrospect conservative, but in a way it's very different. Was your doorway into it? Yes, and then uh, from Hindemith you go to Stravinsky, and then just everything all opens up. Uh, but Eric Lyon, definitely. Okay, piano and string quartet, we have it. This is with Kronos Quartet and Aki Takahashi, and he is one of the great Feldman pianists. He understands Morton Feldman's piano music very, very well, I think. What do you think of that one? I love it. I actually prefer this recording to the recording we just heard. It's more properly slow and to me a little more atmospheric. I love it. There's five hours of that waiting for you anytime you so choose. Of the places you've gone, um, you've heard music that you've not heard reproduced well recorded. Is that correct? Correct. And percussion is the hardest to translate onto a sound system. And do you think that's because the recordings are just not that good of the music, or is the nature of the music impossible to be captured? I think the nature is very difficult to capture, and the visual element is very important, and the ceremonial element or the relationship with the audience is important. Obviously, a better sound system will capture more of the actual music, but there's a way percussion fills the room that uh, you have to be there. I suppose the difference between hearing gospel music in your car and the difference of experiencing it in a, in a participation, it, participating with it in the church. 
Yes, and it's much, much better in the church. Let's try to see if this cut will work for us. He's so versatile, as you know, he can play a kind of bluegrass with Bella Fleck. Ah. Shall we hear a tiny bit of that? Let's do. Just to see his range. Mm -hmm. Of all the places you've been and heard music in person, what's been your fondest memory? Taking my daughter to the Indian Classical Music Festival in Chennai, which is held early every December, runs for, I don't know, maybe two weeks and bringing her around to all these different concerts. And we were able to hear the great Srinivasan on mandolin, a full concert, some like a fifth row seat. Maybe, I don't know, did the ticket cost us 50 cents or something? And it's sweltering heat, but no one cares. And it was just unbelievable. Beautiful. Let's try Hussein and Bella Fleck. That's Edgar Meyer on double bass. Thank you. 
does one even call that? It's beautiful music. It's beautiful music, and you can see how the different traditions fit together so seamlessly. It doesn't. It's interesting because the juxtaposition is an unusual. It's a. It's an unusual collision. Yet, if you don't know anything and you just listen to it, it makes perfect sense, and it, it blends beautifully well together. Why don't you tell us about your encounter with Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan? When he sang in the recording studio, he there was a. It was strange watching through the through the window, seeing him sing because what we heard coming from the speakers, and his mouth motions didn't line up. It was almost as if the sound was coming from somewhere other than his body. And it was a, a mystical experience. And I remember um, this was in the days still where we were using tape before Pro Tools. And because the, the length of the pieces were so long, we had to have two tape machines um, where at one point in time, a second tape machine would take over for the first tape machine because we'd run out of tape because tapes reels were about 15, 16 minutes long and the music kept going. So we had to be able to revolve and go back and forth. And um, I think that may have been the only session where we've ever had to do that. Shall we try hearing a bit? Yes. What I like so much is how erotically supercharged they are while still being spiritual. Ba-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-
beautiful stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. When you hear something in another language, how important uh, is it for you to understand the lyrics? Do you do research to know what they're talking about, or is it more the visceral reaction to the way it sounds? I often prefer not to know the words. I've read a fair amount about Sufism, so I feel like at least a small bit immersed uh-huh. in that universe. And if I can imagine what he might be singing, that can for me be as good. Uh-huh. How about yourself? I'm, I'm open to the sounds. I, I like this. And I would say the same is even true for most, um, most music in English. I'm listening more for the sound of it than necessarily the meaning in the words. The meaning of the words usually is, if I like it, then I may get interested in that. Yeah, I agree with that. My favorite South Asian vocalist, if I had to say, is Pandit Kumar Gantarva. It's usually bad sound, slow to build, but for me, he has the most profound vocal lines. Let's listen a bit. Let's see what we have here by him. I hope it's not too slow to build. Okay. amazing isn't he amazing thank you for playing such beautiful music for us there's one piece if i can find it it's one of the goldberg variations and it's the beginnings of atonal music glenn gould or you want to glenn gould of course and either gould one should work i actually prefer the older yeah with and without repeats and different tempo Okay, that's it, 25. Perfect. You know, the theme of early being unified with late. We've talked about atonal music, avant-garde, percussive music. Bach's Goldberg variations can be highly percussive, but it's also a starting point for atonal music. And one of the variations, it's not literally atonal, but you can hear it moving in that direction. And it's short, to me, quite beautiful. Why don't we play that? Let's do it. 
That's spectacular. You can also hear the Morton Feldman in that, right? Yes. It's an incredible connection. Yeah, it's incredibly modern. And I've listened to this particular recording of the Goldberg Variations many times over the course of my life. And I've never noticed how interesting that particular one is. Because in the context of the overall, it doesn't stand out. I, I've never listened to it. Yeah. I've never listened to it as a standalone piece. But when you take it out, it's real. It sounds revolutionary. Wagner is the next step in a way, and it's one of Bach's greatest achievements, which is really saying something. So beautiful. Now I thought we would go to something very recent. So I thought to myself, interesting question: like the last three or four years, what's the single song from that time that has impressed me the most? And you think about it too, because I'll ask you what your pick is. It's not easy, and you may offend some people by choosing anything, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't, can't even come up with, I don't know that I could come up with one. But I have one, and I'll play just the first, I think, two minutes, 15 seconds. It's a nine-minute song or so. All nine minutes are great, but I wouldn't say all nine minutes are great on a podcast, mm -hmm. if you understand the distinction. Yes. Uh, for this, why don't we put it on your system? Mm -hmm. This is Lana Del Rey, and it's called Venice Bitch. This is the song I keep on going back to. I'll play you my favorite Lana song after this. Great. Feel fun, feel love, fresh out of fucks forever, trying to be stronger for you. Ice cream. Ice queen, I dream in jeans and leather. Life's dream, I'm sweet for you. Oh God, miss you on my lips. It's me, a little Venice bitch on the stoop with the neighborhood kids. but that's just the beginning of this entrance to this whole musical universe. That just leaves me on the floor. 
That's what do you think? What, how would you describe what it is about it? If you were to analyze what you think you're reacting to, what is it? It's one of those songs like Strawberry Fields Forever that it's even difficult to talk about, but it's a kind of dream pop and it's creating a dream. It keeps on shifting like a dream. There's this extreme willingness to admit her passion for her lover's kiss, creating or hearkening back to this world of an earlier, earlier America where things seemed much simpler but the music is complex and just it, it, it all comes together. And then there's seven more minutes of it where it becomes weirder. And you're, you're always longing for the earlier, more melodic part to come back. And it never does. And it just makes you want to have to listen to it again. Great. But what, what were you thinking? My, my favorite one is also on that album. And it is... That's my favorite album by her. Yeah, it's this one. I was reading some errands and I got to thinking that I thought Maybe I'd get less stressed if I was tested less like all of these debutantes Smiling for miles in pink dresses and high heels and white yachts But I'm not Baby, I'm not, no, I'm not, that I'm not. I've been tearing around in my fucking nightgown, 24-7 Sylvia Plath, writing in blood on my walls, cause the ink in my pen don't work in my notepad. Don't ask if I'm happy, you know that I'm not But at best I can say I'm not sad Cause hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have Hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have Also wonderful. Yeah, it makes me cry. Every time I hear it, it makes me cry. It's um, the power of the lyrics, hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have. It's such a radical line. And the, I, I think her strength is she paints this world that's clearly in a, an illusory war, world. It's not, um, it's not a palpable, real reality that she's talking about. Yet, we can have this emotional connection of these personal stories in the context of this dream world. It's odd. Like, why, why would something so dreamy reach us in such a personal way? And how would you describe what is special in the production and in the sound? It's how ordinary it is. I, I, it's, um, she does very traditional songwriting. The, the way that it's written, other than the lyrics, are very traditional. The lyrics are what makes it super modern. I thought now we'd move to a, a different kind of gut punch. So this song, I'm also sure you know, it's by James Brown, whom I discovered I was about 30 years old. It completely shook up my musical universe. And my favorite James Brown song, it's from 1960. It's from the Think album. It's called Bewildered. And there's, oddly enough, there's a bunch of earlier versions of the song. I think Tommy Dorsey did it first, maybe in 1935, and it sounds nothing like the James Brown version. Mm -hmm. Mostly a different melody, obviously a different style. 
There's some later rhythm and blues versions, which are okay, but don't really connect with me. And just somehow he picked up on this song and delivered with it. And it's one of these songs, the first second, you're entranced. speaks to you most from James Brown? I would probably pick Cold Sweat. Yeah. As my, which is also an early, an early choice. We could listen to a little of it. But it's later than Bewildered, right? I don't know. Cold Sweat is what, the late 60s? And it's much funkier? This is more doo-wop with... I suppose. The thing that... Flame that, turned up? I, I think that James Brown is one of the greatest artists of all time. One of my very favorite and um, his voice is, there's so much energy in his voice. And obviously his performance is unbelievable, but his singing's spectacular. There's nobody else who does what he does. No one can touch him. I love watching him on YouTube. You know the Tammy tapes? Yeah. And then there's a very long Paris concert he did that used to be on YouTube. I think it's still there. there there's... And like you, he was very influenced by professional or not semi-professional wrestling, <laughs> yes. right? No, no, Gorgeous George. Absolutely. Because Gorgeous George had the cape. Yeah, that's one reason why I picked the James Brown. I thought uh, it would tie a bunch of things together. I don't care 
six years later. So that's as early as 66? Yeah, 67. That's incredible. 67. Yeah. I think Bewildered was made 58 or 59, but wow. it comes out in 1960. And Summer Brown is, you know, 1953, and the style's fully mature right away. That's, to me, one of the amazing things about him. There's a great episode about James Brown on the Andrew Hickey podcast about 500 songs telling the history of rock and roll. Highly recommend it. Yeah, good. Do you ever get to see him live, James Brown? No, you know, I made so many foolish mistakes in my life, and that was one of them. I had this sense, incorrect in retrospect, that later on it was somewhat of a degenerate act, not as good, but it just seems I was completely wrong. Yeah, he was like I never scared. saw Miles Davis. Yeah. So many foolish omissions I've made in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I got to see him several times and never disappointed. Yeah. Never disappointed. From the world of classics, let's try Chopin, Etude, Opus 25, number six. And there's so many good recordings of this one. I think the one that comes up is certain to be good enough. I'm curious to see what your software will serve us. There's so many wonderful Chopin pianists. Just perfection, isn't it? Very playful, very beautiful. Interesting that the two hands are two different characters. The left hand is telling us one story, and the right hand is running free. And it's, it, they don't feel... In, in most pieces, they work together to create this bigger whole. In this one, it's like the two characters are really distinctly laid out for us. 
and um, and it's almost like the the right hand is having fun at the expense of the left hand. There's Parisian culture in them, a lot of Polish military culture in Chopin, Italian opera arias, and somehow all brought together into a truly European music. Very beautiful. I never heard that piece before. And I can just listen to the Chopin etudes or Chopin anything again and again. Yeah. And there's so little he did that is not amazing. Beethoven, there's a fair amount. Maybe it's only 20%, but 20% of Beethoven's work is still a lot. Chopin, you're hard-pressed to find anything that isn't just jaw-droppingly good. Of course, he died at a fairly young age. When did you first get into him? I started going to classical concerts when I was 19, but I had heard plenty on what was then LP. And the etudes were my first love. I don't know that they're the best Chopin, but they're the most accessible. I, I actually do think they're the best. The, the nocturnes maybe are deeper, dreamier, more, more languishing, but the etudes, they just hit you. And as a sequence, you know, there's Opus 10, Opus 25, to hear them in sequence straight through. I never get tired of that. Andrei Gavrilov is one of my favorite pianists playing the etudes, uh, the Hungarian Chifra. But again, they've seen so many wonderful recordings. How different are they from recording to recording for you? Oh, very different. So if you hear Richter, who played that first Beethoven cut, if he's doing a Chopin etude, it just sounds so eccentric. He's like taking it apart, putting it back together again. Our Harwitz did a lot of Chopin etudes. He was like Richter, it made it all sound eccentric, but somehow it worked. Pianists today, they're more technically perfect, but also more mainstream. What should we listen to next? Well, I thought we'd go to uh, a group we, we both love, and that's the Birds. They were huge early influence on my musical taste. The Birds, of course, also intersect with Bach. So many of the McGuinn 12 string solos are taken from Bach. Bach chorales, Bach cantatas. They, they blend in psychedelia, Indian music, folk, beetle beat. You know, McGuinn talks about this in his live shows. Different permutations of birds I think I've seen in concert more than any other performer, maybe 25 times. But the song, and there's two versions of this, we need to get the better album version. It's old John Robertson, and it's on Notorious Bird Brothers. And it has the phase shifting and the violin in a way that the single version, I think, is actually pretty mediocre. Let's give a listen. Thank you. 
1968, Gary Usher was the producer. Did you know him? I did not know him. When you hear that, like what, what occurs to you? It's um, bizarre, bizarre that the, uh, when the effect comes on after the bridge and then goes away, odd choices, odd choices. It seems, it doesn't seem as intentional as um, experimenting. Feels more experimental than intentional. I don't think they quite ever knew what they were doing when they made that album. For me, it came out very well. Yeah. It's transitional between psychedelic rock and country rock. Mm -hmm. That's a Chris Hillman cut. John Robertson was, in fact, a guy in Los Angeles, an old movie director, who walked around with the Stetson hat on, with songs about him, but it becomes this weird, birdsy psychedelia, builds its own little world in two minutes, and, and then vanishes. And the breakdown in the middle is really beautiful and unexpected and un interesting. That's my favorite part. Yeah. Oh, and then it's missing on the singles version. They cut it out. Oh, I think they maybe did the, the singles version first and they just didn't put it in. And then they heard it and realized something was missing. The birds were in chaos at this point. This is the album where they took out the picture of David Crosby and put in a picture of a horse because they were upset at Crosby, as many people were in those days. And Crosby was purged from the tapes and his songs were not allowed on the album. Those songs like Triad, which you know from us, you know, the later yeah. CSNY days, uh, was supposed to be on this album, Lady Friend, a Crosby song, which I like, was supposed to be on this album. And they had to come up with other stuff because they kicked out Crosby. And why did you choose it? I think Notorious Bird Brothers is their best album. I think for a podcast, you want a song that's both short and starts somewhat abruptly so people understand what it is they're hearing. And I've always loved the energy of it and the, the spaciness of the middle part. Cool. And people, you know, turn, 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 all that. Better song, but everyone knows that. Yeah. So in part, we're here to listen to things Absolutely. that not everyone knows. Yes. Now, I thought another direction we would take. There's two songs from popular music, uh, both strongly influenced by Calypso. And I've been very interested in Calypso. I've been to Trinidad to hear Calypso. That was a big treat for me. Golden Age of Calypso is less over than people think. And one uh, performer, obviously very famous, but more influenced by Calypso than people realize, that's Chuck Berry. And this song is Havana Moon. And it's one of those songs where throughout the song, you're waiting only for one moment. Maybe that makes it not an ideal podcast song. Because if you're not listening for the one moment, the whole song makes no sense. So the second time you hear the song, it's much better than the first time you hear the song because the anticipation of that moment matters. And it's a scream, but if you can find Chuck Berry, Havana Moon, I'm guessing that's from 1957. Let me try Chuck Berry. And this song just builds. You know, at first, it's not great or it doesn't seem great. Mm -hmm. And songs like that are interesting. They're like puzzles. And there's the sense of mystery that he, he, he's telling you a story throughout the song. Here we go. Havana Moon Havana Moon Me all alone With, with jubble rum Me stand and wait 
for food to come. It's long the night, it's quiet the dark. The boat she late since 12 o'clock. Me watch the tide easing in. It's low the moon, but high the wind. Havana moon, Havana moon. Me all alone, me open the wrong. It's long the wait for boat to come. American girl, come back to me. We'll sail away across the sea. We'll dock in New York, the building's high. We find a home up in the sky. Havana moon, Havana moon. Me still alone, me sip on the rum. Me wonder when the boat she come to bring me love. Oh, sweet little thing, she rock and roll, she dance and sing, she hold me tight, she touch me lips, me eyes they close, me heart she flip. Havana moon, Havana moon, but still alone. Drinking the rum, begin to think the boat no come. American girl, she tell a lie. She say till then, she mean goodbye. Havana moon, Havana moon. Me lay down alone, was good the rum. Me fall asleep, the boat she come. Girl, she look till come the dawn. She weep and cry, return for home. The whistle blow, me open me eyes. Was bright the sun, was blue the skies. Me grab me shoes, me jump and run. Me see the boat head for horizon. Havana moon is gone the run. The boat she sailed. Me love, she gone. Havana moon. Havana moon. The diction in that I find so impressive. It's like he created his own English in all the songs, but in that song it's especially clear. Yeah. That just how he is speaking is so different. And because it's less caught up in rock and roll, like a lot of other wonderful Barry songs, mm -hmm. but certain things are clearer, I find. It's so bare and spare. Yeah. And there's, there's Cuban in there, there's Calypso, a lot of Caribbean. And he masters those elements. Where do you think he would have heard Calypso music in 1957? Well, at that time, it was extremely popular in the United States. It's when the Beatles and others come along that Brazilian Calypso actually become much less commercially successful. So most people would have known those genres. And it's one of the unfortunate things about the era of classic rock, which I love. But it swept away many other interesting things out of the public's attention. Who would have been the most um, notable artist in the Calypso world? The one I like the best is Roaring Lion. Uh, the famous figure in America would have been Rudy Valley. <laughs> There's a wonderful, maybe see if you can find it on there. There's a Roaring Lion song about Rudy Valley. 
if you type in Roaring Lion, Rudy Valley, I bet nothing comes up. But if it comes up, we should hear it. I think mostly the best way to listen to Calypso is on collections or semi-randomly using YouTube or searching other services. You don't need to have a favorite artist. There he is. This sounds like him. It's about Carnival and Calypso. Juve, Barrio, Bale, Bela, Melaseo. It is the folk song and ballad of that beautiful island of Trinidad. Juve, Barrio, Bale, Bela, Melaseo. Every year is Carnival, don't forget. That is Trinidad National Fet. Juve, Barrio, Bale, Bela, Melaseo. On Carnival morning, six bell chimes and everyone they would start to rhyme. Juve, Barrio, Bale, If you look at Rudy Valley's discography, do any look like they may hit the Calypso vibe? Well, a lot of it does. He was the Calypso popularizer, not my favorite, but Roaring Lion did a song about Rudy Valley. I see. Uh, but that's an excellent song. It's a very famous Calypso. Cool. Call and response from West African music. It has everything. Cool. The background noises. But now let's try some, what I call white Calypso. And this is Harry Nielsen, another favorite from early in my life. And it's not a well-known song. It's on an album that was totally dismissed when it came out. His voice was wrecked from smoking, from drinking. This was around the Pussycats period with John Lennon. But the album is Do It on Monday, and the song is Puget Sound. If you just put in Nielsen, Puget Sound, we ought to get there. And this is Harry at his most Calypso. In a cardboard town, in Puget Sound, a crackerjack was jacking up the bottom of a frown. While a little wooden man and his tiny bit of mitt danced a crazy jigsaw puzzle and they laughed at all the hit. The hidden hit was locked up in an iron cage. Some olive 
people passing by could see which only added to the rage he felt when laughter went denied in a cardboard town the puget sound crackle jack was jacking up the bottom of the town while a little wooden man and his tiny paper mitt danced a crazy jigsaw puzzle to the tune of paper Jack was jacking up to the other side of town While a little wooden man and his tiny pill-pocket Danced a crazy jigsaw puzzle and they laughed at all the hit The hated hit was locked up in an iron cage So all the people passing by could see which only added to the rage It felt when after winter night In a cardboard town, Puget Sound From the gout jacked up the other side Why did you choose it? just collapses into incoherence. It's a huge party scene. He was probably super depressed when he made it, but he's also having incredible fun. I like all the cacophony in the background. Mm -hmm. It evokes, again, this earlier America, Puget Sound as this very hokey place. And just this drunk guy singing it, giving it his best. I think this is the one that, that's the one I think of when I think of him in this style of, in this groove. Also Calypso inspired. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I think of this, this when I think famous of this Calypso. Yeah. Brought a bought a cooking nutty, bought it for the time. My sister had another one. She paid it for the lime. She put the lime in the cooking now. She drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the cooking now. She drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the cooking now. She drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the cooking now. She called a doctor, woke him up and said, Doctor. Ain't there nothing I can take? I said, Dada, to relieve his belly ache. I said, Dada, ain't there nothing I can take? I said, Dada, to relieve his belly ache. Now let me get this straight. Put the lime in the coconut to drink Fun. All the people on the scene, from what I've heard, including the Beatles, they considered Harry the polymath who knew everything. You could ask him about anything he would know. He supposedly had an incredible memory. Remarkable mastery of different musical styles. His career never reached the potential that it could have or should have. Um, but if you can impress the Beatles, right, that says something. Absolutely. Both John and Paul. Yes, yeah. I loved him. Yeah, I loved Harry's stuff. Yeah, he's great. And his voice is unbelievable. These songs are not necessarily the songs that most show off his voice. But, his but I voice. think in a way they do, because he's yeah. not doing anything acrobatic. There are all these subtle little ways he's using it precisely because he can't sing properly anymore, yeah. at least for the Puget Sound cut. How are we on time? Do we have time for two more? Yeah, let's do them. Okay. 
The first one, and this is a cut for you in particular, because his understanding of spirituality reminds me of you. And this is a song that he himself described as about longing for place. And the artist, his name is Gurumal, G-U-R-R-U-M-A-L. And the title of it, it's named after a bird. It's Wyatul, or Wyathul, W-I-Y-A-T-H-U-L. And there should be a, a studio version and a live version. Studio version's a little overproduced. So if the live version is there, we'll do that. But if we need to, we'll do the studio. And he's sometimes called an Aboriginal from Australia, but technically he would be a Torres Strait Islander. And he was born blind and was a kind of musical genius who sung about his homeland in his native language. Mm-hmm. 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 
thought I had to pick one especially for you. That's the one that came to mind now that I know you. So beautiful. And there's nothing else like it, is there? No. No, his voice is so pure and there's so much energy in it and we don't need to understand the words. It's like it's all there. My wife and daughter had the good fortune to see him perform in Paris before he passed away. Sadly, I missed that. But it leaves me without words. Beautiful. Last cut, of course, it has to be Paul McCartney, right? How could it be anyone other than Paul McCartney? But, you know, you need to ask yourself, what is it you can play for people from Paul McCartney that is new? So I picked a cut for two reasons. First is there's, you know, so much this reputation that solo McCartney or early solo McCartney, it's all like sweet or sickly or too gushy. And that's so wrong in my view. And this is a cut that it shows the sardonic side of early solo, you know, Paul and Linda. Paul and Linda did, did this together. It's on the Ram album. It's called Dear Boy. And Paul said during a satellite radio special that it's actually addressed to Linda's previous husband, and they're telling him he didn't know what a good thing he had with Linda. And Linda, of course, joins in. Now, I don't know any of the people or details. I'm fully on Paul's side. But to have the stones to do that you know, to your relatively new wife's ex-husband and do it so publicly as a Beatle. Yeah. That's wonderful, I think. That's radical. And then the, the harmonies, how much it's a tribute to the Beach Boys. And Brian Wilson, when the song came out, he was having his own troubles. He didn't know about it. He heard it many years later and was just overwhelmed by the job Paul did, kind of reimagining Beach Boys style production, but for Paul and Linda McCartney in 1971. Mm, that's Guess you never knew, dear boy, what you had found. Guess you never knew, dear boy, that she was just the cutest thing around. I guess you never knew what you had found, dear boy. Guess you never
you're the music producer. Any comment? Uh, I'd never heard it before. I, I don't remember hearing it before. It's, it's just perfectly composed use of percussion. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. I want to play you my favorite modern era Paul song. I'd love to hear it. This is from 2008. Mine is When Winter Comes, if you're wondering. I think he's 70 and on that. Yeah. It's, it's just the his passion for the rock and roll is so strong. <laughs> As a closer, should we hear just a snippet from When Winter Comes? It's yeah. a nice letting Absolutely. off steam. Absolutely. And it's on the very latest album. There's a wonderful animated YouTube video that goes along with it. I enjoy watching the video and listening at the same time. By the acre plot Two young foxes have been nosing around The lambs and the chickens won't feel safe Until it's done I must dig a drain by the carrot patch The whole crop spoils if it gets too damp And where will we be with an empty store When winter comes When comes and food is scarce we'll want our toes to stay indoors when summer's gone we'll fly away and find the sun when winter comes must find the time to plant some trees In the meadow where the river flows In 
Time to come, they'll make good shade for some poor soul. When winter comes and food is scarce, we'll want our toes to stay indoors. When summer's gone, we're gonna fly away. And find the sun when winter comes. Must fix the fence by the acre plot. Two young foxes have been nosing around, and the lambs and the chickens won't feel safe until it's done. When winter comes and food is scarce. We'll want our toes to stay indoors when summer's gone. We're gonna fly away and find the sun when winter comes. And find the sun when winter comes. What more can one say? So beautiful. Thank you so much for doing this. I have a feeling we'll be doing this a lot more in the future. That would be great. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank you.